It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It is Tuesday, October 12th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, and very gratefully, the host of this fine program every weekday, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We love it when you listen live. We love to see it. If you can't, we have a podcast. It's on demand. It is free. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home here at the show. Listen to today's lineup. We have Dana Perino joining us this hour. In the next hour, Secretary Chad Wolf of the Trump administration, DHS, on the border. We'll get his perspective. In our final hour, Christopher Rufo, who's an expert on critical race theory, arguably one of the most significant and foremost experts in the country on that whole umbrella of issues and particularly how they are taught or introduced or indoctrinated in schools. It is becoming a major issue in the Virginia governor's race. We'll ask him about that. We'll also broaden it out to the entire country. We will also tell you a story today that is breaking out of northern Virginia that is extremely disturbing. That's coming up in the next hour. It's a Daily Wire exclusive. We will read from some of that story, and I will try to put it into context because it actually leads right into our conversation that we're going to have with Rufo. So a pretty significant, at times heavy, program ahead. Thank you for listening. Fox News alert as we begin today's show. Let's bring you statistics. As we always do on coronavirus, the case count cumulatively in the United States is 44.4 million on COVID. That's the official number for reasons that we often explain. It is not anywhere close to the true number. It is a massive undercount. The death toll is 714,960 deaths of Americans with or from COVID. The Dow is currently down today, trailing yesterday from, let's see, 70 points now it's down. It's currently at 34,425. We have just over 51 minutes to go in the trading day up on Wall Street, and we will update you in the 4 o'clock hour once the closing bell has rung. Now, as we begin today's show, I want to start with encouraging and good news. I just hope it lasts. And it comes on a front that is a little bit off the beaten path, just a little bit. It's not the border crisis. It's not Afghanistan. It's not the battle on Capitol Hill over spending. There are some updates there, by the way, that we'll try to get to later on in the show. But it is related to one of the major cultural battles in this country that has been raging for years. Long ago, it was called political correctness. Then it started to get really weaponized in a new way. It has become woke cancel culture or whatever you want to call it. And we talk about it a lot on this show, almost on a daily basis. Sometimes we use it as a source of humor because I, I think sometimes mocking the woke scolds is the best weapon we have. Sometimes it's a little bit too serious 
just to ridicule. And so we talk about it. I'll inveigh against it. But sometimes the question arises frustrated over and over again in minds of not just me and the team here, but many of you, I would imagine. What can be done? Do we just sit here and complain? Or are there actual solutions? Well, we had the New Tolerance campaign. Was that the name of it? We had Gregory Angelo on the other day talking about their project, the goal of which is to organize people. You can give your email address and you can get involved on an activist level with very little actual work on your part. When there's a flashpoint or a controversy and you want your voice to be heard to sort of counteract the hard left, there's a way for you to do that. It's sort of a turnkey operation. We'll get you that exact website. I want to make sure that I have the organization right and the link correct because many of you expressed interest in that. But there are also institutional things that can and should be done to push back against woke excess and the mob because we often talk about how many scalps they claim, how often they seem to win with the woke mob frequently on these long winning streaks where people seem just utterly paralyzed in the face of that type of organized, even small action, right? Not many people at all. And yet they make enough noise and enough threats and do enough bullying and have enough clout that they far too often get their way with people totally unequipped, leaders of universities and institutions and corporations totally unequipped to fight back or so they seem to think. And I'm hoping that the new development today and yesterday offers a bit of a roadmap about how the woke mob does not need to win, and it actually isn't always that hard to stand up to them. I know that there are these groups and companies and colleges, you name it, that are utterly terrified, frozen in fear of being called all the isms, all the names, having some angry people on Twitter, a bunch of phone calls or emails, direct action. This is how the left operates. It's how they often exert their will. But if you can look past that and get past the initial short-term generated astroturf pain, by that I mean not authentic, not grassroots, not representative, not mainstream. If you can just get past it, they peter out or they run out of steam or they go on to the next potential victim if they don't get their way with you. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of courage and leadership to say no. Say, yes, your concerns are noted, but also your demands. Here is our response. No. And it's amazing how that actually works. In this case, it is Netflix, the streaming content behemoth. I'm a subscriber. I like a lot of their stuff. I don't love all of their stuff. It's the way a free society works. I've decided that it's worth paying my money to have access to their content, even if I don't love all of it or sometimes object. I'm sure they have some corporate values that I don't like. I'm sure they have political donations that I don't like. I try not to live my life constantly politicized in every single aspect. So Netflix, as we talked about last week on this show, has put out another comedy special stand-up by Dave Chappelle. 
His last one was controversial. This one is arguably more controversial. He does a lot of jokes about the gay community, the trans community. I'm a member of the gay community. I'm not a member of the trans community, although they talk about LGBT like we're one community. And sometimes we agree. Sometimes we disagree. It's just not a monolith. They have come after him, especially in the trans community, for years. And he uses this most recent special at some length to respond. And he made jokes that are at times hilarious, at times offensive, at times both. Sometimes cringeworthy. I thought it was sort of brilliantly crafted. I didn't agree with everything. But you should not go into a stand-up comedy, in my opinion, special or act or experience, expecting to have everything that you believe fully reinforced and not to be offended at all. That is not the point of comedy. If we cannot push boundaries and poke bears and gore sacred cows in comedy, then it's not allowed anywhere, which is why I'm very defensive of comedy. So Chappelle did his thing. I watched it. I enjoyed it, even though I didn't love every minute of it. I think that's just like normal. And there are people out there who are, of course, predictably furious They tried to cancel him last time. He's also not cancelable. He's way too rich, way too popular, way too famous, and he doesn't care. He walked away from a Comedy Central deal worth millions, tens of millions, just said goodbye, not interested. He is in that enviable position of saying, I don't care what you guys think. I'm going to do my thing anyway, and there's nothing anyone can actually do about it, which is part of the beauty of Dave Chappelle, honestly. Even though he's not like my favorite guy in the world. I'm not a huge Dave Chappelle stan. I think he's interesting. I think he's smart. I think he's clever. I think he can be sort of creative in certain ways. So this blow up has occurred. And there have been a thousand thumb sucking think pieces about this from people writing about how betrayed they are by Dave Chappelle and how this is not the Dave Chappelle they once knew and how he was used to be funny but not anymore and why are we giving him a platform and all of this stuff totally predictable in fact predicted by him this was both a response and a pre-sponse that's how he formulated this stand-up comedy gig that he just did that's available on Netflix which is called, by the way, The Closer, if you want to look it up. In The Closer, among other things, Dave Chappelle said this, which I absolutely love, and it goes to some of the lessons that should be learned here. In Cut 14, listen. When Sticks and Stones came out, a lot of people in the trans community were furious with me, and apparently they dragged me on Twitter. I don't give a f- because Twitter's not a real place. <laughs> I don't give a bleep because Twitter's not a real place. I should put that in my own Twitter bio, frankly. So that's his attitude. The question is, what would Netflix do? Because people got big mad. A lot of pressure coming in. Why will you allow this hate speech? So on and so forth. So the CEO of Netflix put out a memo. And I'm going to read part of this memo. Quote, I want to follow up on the closer, Dave Chappelle's last special. 
as several of you have reached out following a business meeting, asking what to say to your teams. This is to the leadership at Netflix. It never feels good when people are hurting, especially our colleagues, so I want to give you some additional context. You should also be aware that some talent may join third parties in asking us to remove this show in the coming days, which we are not going to do. Chappelle is one of the most popular stand-up comedians today. We have a long-standing deal with him. His last special, Sticks and Stones, also controversial, is our most watched, stickiest, and most award-winning stand-up special to date. As with our other talent, we work hard to support their creative freedom, even though this means there will always be content on Netflix some people believe is harmful. Several of you have also asked where we draw the line on hate. We don't allow titles on Netflix that are designed to incite hate or violence, and we don't believe the closer crosses that line. I recognize that distinguishing between commentary and harm is hard, especially with stand-up comedy, which exists to push boundaries. Some people find the art of stand-up to be mean-spirited, but our members enjoy it, and it's an important part of our content offering. Externally, Particularly in stand-up comedy, artistic freedom is obviously a very different standard of speech than we allow internally at the company as the goals are different, entertaining people versus maintaining a respectful, productive workplace. So basically, this is a full-throated defense of comedy and artistic freedom. It is saying the mob is coming for us. We know that it's coming for us. They're going to use pressure points. We are not going to bow. We are not going to take it down. This will remain on our platform. Good day. Here's the explanation. I hope they stick with this. This is correct. This is the medicine that we need. Now, you may have seen some headlines, and this all went viral. Oh, some Netflix employees were suspended, including a trans person you may have read. A trans employee suspended for tweeting negatively about this special and for, for criticizing Netflix. Now, look, how would your employer like it if you just decided to drag them all over social media and just dumping on your own employer that signs your paychecks? Would that go over well? Would you just do that without thinking twice? Probably not. I wouldn't. Now, some of this is about being courageous, right? Oh, it's just so brave. These woke activists are so brave, but then they don't want any consequences. Part of being so brave is recognizing that you might do something that could have a ramification for you that you may not like, but you're willing to do it anyway on principle. Now, in this case, it's not even true. These people were not suspended or reprimanded or punished because of public criticism of their employer. They were punished because they barged into a meeting of the company leadership that they were not invited to and started ranting and raving and making demands, which is not acceptable behavior. Now, some companies and universities and others would cower and say, oh, we are so sorry. You are so brave. Thank you for letting us know how harmful this is. Please, let's have a dialogue. Sit down. Let's. And then the demands ratchet up. The apologies are never good enough. And this is how the cycle goes. Netflix said no. It's comedy. It's protected. It doesn't cross the line of our standards. We're keeping it up. We're not firing you or reprimanding you or getting you in trouble if you criticize us. But if you barge into our meeting unannounced where you're not invited, you're not allowed to be there, that is not behavior that we're going to condone. And there will be a ramification. There will be a consequence for that behavior. And then they took it. 
and they're correcting the record of a bunch of false stories or headlines suggesting this was just censorship over criticism, which it was not. So twice over, good for Netflix, their initial decision and planting the flag and planting their feet and then refusing to go along with the screaming histrionics of children. This is the way, ladies and gentlemen, I hope other companies and other leaders are taking notes. And I really hope Netflix doesn't cave and make me rescind this entire monologue. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're just getting going today on this Tuesday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. By the way, that group that I mentioned, it's the New Tolerance Campaign. If you want to fight back against the woke mob, you can do your small part, but it's something. Newtolerance.org newtolerance.org. I promised you I would get that to you. And so there it is. I want to play you, since we're talking about comedy and bravery, here's an admission on a recent podcast interview from the left-wing comedian Samantha B. talking about the way that she basically covered for a political figure because she was afraid of her own audience and what they wanted to hear. Listen to Cut 15. Never hold someone up as a hero or something that you admire because that is a danger zone. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I was not a homosexual uh, particularly. And uh, there were many, many times actually during the pandemic where we had like big, you know, show wide conversations about like, how do we handle Cuomo? Because he's super problematic. But the story about him out in the world was like, he's a hero and he's the only person yeah. speaking about the pandemic in in a fatherly way and he is our dad and whatever. Yeah. And so it felt like a place where it wasn't quite the time to be like, hey, just like check it out. He's actually an a- Right. Uh- out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. We felt like we would just miss completely with our audience. And people weren't really there to hear that at that moment. Uh Uh-huh. So they protected Andrew Cuomo. How courageous. How subversive. Comedy from Samantha B, ladies and gentlemen. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day, and we are thrilled to welcome back to the show our friend and colleague Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, New York Times best-selling author, most recently of the book Everything Will Be Okay, 
Hello, Dana. Welcome back. Hello. I jumped right in there. I almost interrupted you because I was so excited to be back. But no false start. That's a football reference. I know you're a big uh-huh. sports fan, Dana. Uh-huh. So you know, no flag on the play. Dana, before we get into some of the news of the day, I've been talking to a lot of our Fox colleagues over the last week or so about this big, exciting 25-year anniversary mark for this network and the real shift in the landscape of American media and politics that Fox has caused. And Mm -hmm. you've been here now for years. Of course, you were on the other side of the podium as well in your time at the White House working for President George W. Bush. I just wonder what your reflections are broadly on this 25-year mark and this sort of birthday party for Fox News, then maybe do you have one memory that really stands out as perhaps encapsulating your experience thus far here at Fox? Oh, my gosh, such great questions. Um, It's interesting. I've been here 11 years, and it's strange because I still feel new because the culture of the place is so strong. And the other day when we had the actual anniversary – 136 people who still work here were here on day one. Wow. And I I think that's quite remarkable 25 years later. Um, And to think what they started with, right? Everybody made fun of them. Rupert Murdoch said that people thought he was crazy, throwing away money. And I'm glad that he uh, gets to have the last laugh on that. Um, One of my favorite classes in college was the history of journalism. And we went all the way back, right, to the printing press, things like that. And I think about how, not right now, because modern history is like no fun, right? <laughs> because you'd have these hot takes about Fox News. But just fast forward a little bit and, and think about looking back, you know, 50 years from now. And what a difference it was to have just an alternative voice in the media, for opinion programming and also just a real dedication to news gathering that is, I think, superior. Um, by far, I would say our coverage of Afghanistan was the best on cable news. Um, and I mean, right up there with the broadcast networks, I think ABC and CBS certainly had some of the best coverage there. But we were hanging right there with them on the news side of things. So as Suzanne Scott, the CEO, says that the news side is the bread and butter, right? And the opinion side is the stuff that everybody also loves. And there's this really great blend. I also think it's been remarkable for me having been at a White House where our circle was very tight. Like, those are relationships forged in fire. And I, do, I would do anything for those people, and, and I hope they would call upon me if they ever needed help. But, Guy, I feel the same way about this place. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just look all around, and we had such warm feelings for each other uh, as we celebrated that anniversary I think I'm really looking forward to what's next. If I had to look at one day that really encapsulated it, I guess it would have to be the first day that we did the five in July of 2011. I was told it was going to be a temporary five-week show. Would I mind coming up here to do it during the weekdays? I could go home on the weekends, back to D.C. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Manhattan in the summer is the worst. And my husband— Five whole weeks. Yeah, when I called my husband, he said, congratulations. I said, what do you mean? And he said, this is exactly what you always wanted to do. And I think of that moment as like, oh, right, it is. And it's been a wonderful experience. And the show just took off instantly, and it's dominant. It's amazing how people have responded to The Five. And I think just to make one comment of my own on this, sparked by what you said, I think a lot of the camaraderie 
that we feel internally here is not just because there's a lot of really cool, fun people who work at Fox, and whether it's on air or off air, there's just some remarkable folks in the building in D.C. and New York and elsewhere. I think the external pressures and criticisms and slings and arrows builds that level of loyalty, like we're in this together and there's people who are constantly criticizing us and after us, and I feel like that forges a deeper bond. That's <laughs> like at least, at the at White least House. part of it for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it, right. Sort of what you were saying, there's a lot of criticism. In fact, a lot of the critics are literally the exact same people. Yeah, exactly. Media liberals <laughs> who dominate everything else, right? That yeah. That's kind of the reality. The other thing is that the number of people who have watched The Five from day one that remember things that happened years ago or things that were said or um, a, a specific moment on the show... And they really do think of themselves as a special part of our extended Fox family. Totally. And that's pretty neat. I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny to think about people saying, oh, my gosh, do you remember when Jesse said this or Greg said that? And um, you're right. Like, that show is just an incredible joy. I think one of the things that is great about it is that we don't have any script at all. We just show up prepared to talk about what we want to talk about, but... Um, you never know what you're going to get. So um, aside from the intros that we read off the top of every segment, it is just completely unscripted. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what we do for three hours here on the radio I know, every and day. it's not easy and to do it for three hours. It's not. It's not. But there's a family element, not just our little team, and we're close-knit, the four of us here on the show, but the audience. It's part of the family and hearing from listeners and people who get invested and they'll ask after, you know, people in my family or my dog or they're in on certain inside jokes. That's part of the joy of showing up and doing this every day. Part of the joy also, Dana, is that we get to talk about stories that at times are wildly entertaining. And I cannot get enough of this story about the vice president, Kamala (laughs) Harris. We played a clip of this on the show yesterday before a detail leaked out about the context. But this was the vice president meeting with some children talking about Discovery and NASA and outer space. And she was talking to them. People are joking like she, like, had a lot of edibles and they all hit her at once. She was really feeling herself in this clip. It's even more amazing to watch, which we can't do here on the radio. And the kids are dutifully sitting there listening as she's rhapsodizing about space and Discovery or what have you. This is what it sounded like, just as a reminder, cut three. To think about so much that's out there that we still have to learn. Like, I love that. I love that. And so I'm very excited about the Space Council. We're going to learn so much um, as we increasingly, I think, are curious and interested in the potential for the discoveries and the work we can do in space. So that's one of the things I'm most excited about. And she goes on at one point, I'm telling it's going to be unbelievable. You can see the moon with your own eyes. And the kids are like, whoa, she's talking to them like they're five. They look like they're maybe 12 or 13. So there's the awkwardness there. And then we learned last night that these were not kids from some local school. That was my assumption, like the, the science club. From one of the local D.C. schools came in to learn about this, and it's a YouTube series called Get Curious with Vice President Harris. These were actually child actors who had to audition (laughs) for these parts, and they booked these parts to show up and play average kids, which is – 
probably why they looked so engaged and enthralled as opposed to slightly creeped out by this woman. I don't understand what the thought process was here to have paid child actors come in for this. It makes it even more hilarious to me, Dana. I think that's the thing that we should all do with this. We just ha- you just have to laugh. This is I, m- one of my very favorite shows of the last several years is Veep. I yes. recommend it to everybody. Like this yes. would have happened on Veep. It 100%. literally would have happened. And then when the White House um, responded today, <laughs> when the Vice President's office responded, their statement was something like, "We had no idea that this was happening. We had no- nothing to do with the child actors." And I said, "Oh, don't worry." We didn't think you had a clue about any of it. I mean, that is a pattern that we are seeing over and over again. You know, they yeah, hired a they don't know anything. They hired an image consultant to help her seem more relatable. And in order to do that, they had to hire child <laughs> actors. And also, Guy, do you know that this was all happening? She actually filmed this on the day where Afghanistan was falling apart. It was that day. I was. I can't remember the exact date, but it was. Yeah, it was one of those days. I'm trying to find it in my notes right here. Um, yeah, it was one of those like one of, like those days Ooh. where you're thinking, oh my gosh, did this? Um, you know, you see everything uh, disintegrating, kids getting kicked out, girls getting kicked out of school, things like that. Um, wait, here it is. Oh, right here it is. Right here. Bring the actors in. Bring the kid actors in here, and they're going to uh, ooh and ah as the vice president talks about outer space. Yep. Yep. Um, but here's the thing. Um, just laugh about it, right? So they use yeah. taxpayer dollars. But oh, wait, I forgot the best part. Forgot the best part. Yeah. The name of the production company. Uh huh. I love this. Sinking Ship Entertainment. Honestly, this is Veep. <laughs> even, even the and writers of Veep Canadian. could not have come up with this. It's that funny. They're not even American. They're not even an American yeah, production Toronto. company. Toronto. How about that? They're, they're, they're a Canadian group America called Sinking Second. Ship. America second. And they brought these kids in. And there's one one of the child actors who I think is 13 uh, who auditioned. And then his agent called him and said, hey, you booked the gig. And the gig was to come and pretend to be interested at the Naval Observatory with Kamala Harris is uh, carrying on with these children, I guess. Did you notice the other part of that, Dana, where it's like she psyched herself up to talk to kids and had – sort of a mismatch in her brain of the tone for the age group. Because you talk to tweens or adolescents very differently than first graders. But she was going first grader with the tweens. I think that one of the problems for her has been for a long time that she doesn't seem authentic. Um, And you saw that in the focus group. Don't take that from me. Um, This is from Democratic voters. Um, that there was an authenticity pro- problem, and you saw and this phony. over and over again. And uh, they don't do her any favors as an image consultant saying, oh, this would might be a really great way to make her seem relatable by hiring child actors and putting her in a position where she's not comfortable. So what do you get for, for this? They're going to put this on a YouTube channel. What voter exactly, what voter constituency are you going for? What do you actually care about? Do you have any idea what's going on in this country? Um, Guy, I have to say that I just find it mystifying that somebody who achieves this incredible accomplishment of becoming the first woman vice president is basically not doing anything with the power of the office. And and, and I I realize that a lot of people might think that whatever she would do on the border might not be what they want, but at least you could admire her for trying. She literally is doing nothing that you can see. There's nothing tangible. And I think what a waste of an opportunity. 
And I, I say oh, that here publicly because I would like to say to her in person, like, come on, just do it. Like, for example, when those three guys in the Biden administration went down to Mexico last week to talk about the immigration problem and she didn't go and she's supposed to be in charge of the issue. There's no way I would have let them go without me. Heck no. I would have said, actually, you guys are invited to ride on my plane and I will be leading the delegation and you can brief me while we are on our way there. Because the president put her in charge of this. That was Biden's decision. I don't think she wants to be in charge of it. I think she'd much rather do this with with Get Curious. I have to note, by the way, Dana, Alla Pundit writing at Hot Air had a very funny take on this entire imbroglio. It is straight out of Veep. He said you needed child actors because she was acting so out there in her conversation, this just painfully phony, weird affect that normal school kids would have been looking at each other with side eye like, uh, what the hell is this woman talking about? So you needed people who were really professionals to pretend like everything was normal and good. And they did a very good job. And one of the kids was quoted as saying, oh, she's uh, she's very charming. She's very charismatic. And all upon it said, well, he would have to say that if he wants to land the role and get curious too." <laughs> the sequel from uh, Sinking Ship Productions. But Dana, you mentioned – the vice president not really asserting herself on the border or really on anything. She seems to have been sidelined by the president's team, but also self-sidelining in some ways. Yeah. The president, meanwhile, is not taking questions almost ever. We ran through yeah. some of the stats yesterday. The RNC went back and looked at the tape. He has not taken a question on Afghanistan in 32 days. Mm. He's done one sit-down interview. As you know, when you put a principal, the president or whomever, down and you sit them down for a one-on-one interview, that interviewer, that journalist has an opportunity to really go back and forth and dig deeper and and ask follow-ups. He has exposed himself or subjected himself to that type of grilling one time in the last almost three months. Obviously, this is a strategy that they have decided on. They've landed on it saying, I guess the president defending himself and making his case would do more harm. And therefore, we are going to shield him from questions as often as possible. What do you make, Dana, of that strategy? I think it's terrible. I mean, it might, they might think that it's helping him, but look at the poll numbers. Uh, they're in free fall. So it seems to me like the White House is floundering. And also, what happened to return to norms? I thought we were returning to norms. Um, and the norms is that the president takes questions from the press. President Trump took questions all the time. Uh, and even though the press, the mainstream media really couldn't stand him, they loved the fact that they had access to him. And because they seem to try to treat President Biden with kid gloves, they're not complaining about no access. I have to tell you, if I was White House press secretary, uh, I could imagine during the Bush administration, if President Bush didn't take questions for this long on such an important topic that is of great national interest, um, I would have heard about it from the White House Correspondence, Correspondence Association. They would have been yep. beating down my door, but also I would have wanted to help provide that. However, I didn't, I just worked for a president who would never would have put me in that position. Right. So as much as you think the staff won't let him, the staff won't let him look, he's in charge. He is the commander in chief. He gets to decide. And DeRoy Murdoch of National Review had a really good piece in which he said, Biden is in charge. Like a lot, many people might think that uh, everybody else is running the show, but that lets him off too easily. Yep. He loves, no, he, he's making he, these he used decisions. to love to talk to the press. He knows he should talk to the press. And that's why he always says, oh, they told me not to take questions. 
so that he can blame somebody else. And it's not just Afghanistan. It's the border. I mean, there are multiple concurrent crises. He's presiding over all of them. And he deigns to take a question here or there every so often with very few follow ups. He often snaps at reporters who might shout a question at him. It's not a great look to put it very mildly, but it is what they've landed on as their their tactical footing moving forward here. And it isn't going well, but I guess their fear is it could go even worse the more he talks. And that's the calculation apparently that they have made thus far. Dana Perino, we've got to let you go. I know you're preparing for the five coming up in just over an hour on Fox News Channel. We always love chatting with you. Let's have you back soon. Okay. Oh, you bet. Bye, guys. Our friend Dana Perino and our colleague on The Guy Benson Show. More right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Quick Fox News alert here. There's been some movement on Capitol Hill involving the Democratic spending ambitions. Speaker Pelosi sending out a message last night to her members saying, look, we're going to have to pare back this bill. This is the reconciliation one. It's not going to be $3.5 trillion. We're going to have to cut. And she's apparently saying she's disappointed, but they're going to have to get rid of a lot of the spending in order to get this thing through. Now, asked today what they're going to cut, she said, well, we might pare back the number of years, which would be such a budgetary gimmick where they would just spend a ton of money for five or six years as opposed to 10, say that it costs less, and then say these programs can never, ever expire. That's one of the tricks that they use. So be on the lookout for that. Be on alert for that. We'll follow it here on The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Our middle hour is now underway here on The Guy Benson Show, and we are so happy that you've joined us on this Tuesday. Thank you for listening. Our website, as always, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is on demand. It is free of charge every single day around the clock at your fingertips. You can listen. You can subscribe. You can leave reviews, which we always love, only if they're good. That's GuyBensonShow.com for everything that you need and much more. As we begin our middle hour, let's bring in our next guest. He is Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump. He is the chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at AFPI, also a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Chad, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Guy. So I saw one of your tweets, I want to say a week or two ago at this point. And it was the Biden administration at that stage in the game had announced that they were going to launch another legal challenge to try to stay out of the remain in Mexico policy that had been so successful at curbing the border crisis, a much smaller one under President Trump. They exited from that agreement. They 
dissolved the policy. They were told by the Supreme Court that they did so in an unlawful way. And rather than just kind of taking the win and getting their arms around the problem a bit by reinstating a policy and if they had to, blaming it on the Supreme Court, they decided, no, they're going to fight forward anyway to make sure that that policy remains defunct. And you tweeted something to the effect of it's almost as if they are trying to fail when it comes to securing the border and mitigating this crisis. I wonder if subsequent events in just in the last few days might deepen that suspicion or conviction on your part that they have absolutely no interest in actually solving the problem. Well, I do. I do think that's right. I think from a number of things that they've done, not only refusing to implement that Remain in Mexico program, but issuing guidelines to ICE on who they can't remove. And today issuing guidelines on uh, refusing or telling ICE not to do any more uh, workforce enforcement um, cases as well. And so it's really, you know, border wall contracts being canceled. It's just one thing after another, almost on a weekly basis by this administration that is sending the signal to the American people that they're not serious about border security. They're not serious about immigration enforcement. They're not serious about getting the largest crisis that we've had in, in 20 years under control because they continue to do and take actions that go against that uh, that approach. And so it's struggling to me, uh, you know, as someone who worked at the department, trying to understand what their approach is, what their strategy is to get this crisis under control. And my tweet, my purpose of the tweet was to say, I'm not sure that they want to get it under control. I think this is what they designed it to do. And I think they're very happy with the approach that uh, is currently being taken. Why? Because they're getting just hammered in the polling. The president is 50 points underwater in some of these polls on immigration, his approval ratings in the 20s, and almost no one is in favor of this. Do they feel like taking those hits and absorbing those lumps might be painful politically, but they're letting in a bunch of illegal immigrants and that's ultimately good news to them? I mean, what exactly is at play here in terms of their motivation or the strategy? So I think there's a couple of different things at play. One is they don't, uh, you know, they're against anything that Trump was for. So we had a very effective border security policy. I think they still believe that that is, uh, plays to their base is to be against whatever Trump was for. So that's one thing. Two, they don't believe in immigration enforcement. They never have uh, from a number of activists in the party. And so I think they're fulfilling a campaign promise in a sense, because this is obviously what Joe Biden ran on as well as far as an immigration policy. So they're fulfilling that campaign promise at the end of the day. This could be also be about voters. I know there's a lot of speculation out there about this is an effort to bring in voters that will vote for Democrats in the future. So I think there's a number of things at play. And I think ultimately they believe that this issue will go away by the time the midterms in 2022 and certainly by 2024 roll around. They think that the department will have this under control or that it will be so commonplace that most Americans won't give it a second thought. And uh, so there's a variety of different things, I believe, that are, that, uh, you know, allow them to continue down this path. You listed off a number of the decisions that they've made. I can't say I'm surprised at all by the border wall. That sort of it was a signature campaign promise and a signature policy of President Trump. There's no way that they want to embrace that. So they're against the wall. You know, no shock there whatsoever. The Remain in Mexico policy was working. That that seems to be very foolish of them to have thrown that overboard with no other plan in place. You also mentioned 
this memo, and we covered it at the time from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, your successor, Secretary Mayorkas, telling the enforcement arms of the federal government, we are not going to deport people for all sorts of different reasons. Simply being in the country illegally is not a deportable event anymore in almost all cases. Even if some of these illegal immigrants cross the border, are living here illegally, violated our laws and sovereignty, then commit and are convicted of another crime, that's not necessarily enough either because there might be mitigating circumstances and there's all these criteria where someone might be allowed to stay even after breaking our laws twice If you could just reflect on that, let's linger there for a second, because to me, that is one of the most shocking things that they've done, where we have hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border illegally every month. It's ratcheting up. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And here in our internal enforcement, they are announcing openly, we are going to do a lot fewer deportations, and we're going to let a lot more people stay here, even if you come here in violation of our laws and commit more crimes. I don't know what that is other than a flashing invitation for more people to come here and even commit crimes and get to stay. Well, it's exactly that. I mean, again, policy after policy, we talk a lot about an open borders policy. Essentially, that's what that is, along with, you know, allowing individuals to come across the border into the country and then releasing them mostly without any paperwork. That is the definition of open borders. But to go back to that to that guideline and that policy that was issued, again, it's okay to have priorities. Also embedded in those guidelines is, is Secretary Mayorkas talking about having priorities that ICE law enforcement will, uh, will follow. I think that's fine. We had similar priorities in the Trump administration. The difference, though, is that we never, under the Trump administration, would never uh, omit... Uh, classes of individuals from enforcement action, basically telling ICE law enforcement, do not enforce the law, even though they've broken the law once, they may have broken it twice, you can even break it three or four times uh, under the new guidelines and not be deported and not have enforcement action taken. So we would never, never exempted whole classes of individuals from the law. And that's what they're doing today. And I think that's a fundamental difference. And it's it's one thing to tell law, ICE law enforcement officers, ignore the law. All these individuals are, you know, certainly candidates to be deported. But I'm telling you, as secretary, not to do your job, not to enforce the law. I'm going to tell you which laws to enforce. And then, therefore, you can go out and do your job. It's just it's a completely different way to look at law enforcement. And I don't believe the vast majority of Americans support it at all. Our guest is Secretary Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of DHS under the previous administration. You also made mention of this new development just today, which is from The Washington Post. Here's the headline. Biden administration orders halt to ICE raids at work sites will shift enforcement to target employers. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to targeting employers who willfully and knowingly employ people who are not eligible to work legally in this country. But by – again, this is another public pronouncement and announcement of one strand of enforcement that they are just taking off the table. And they're taking a lot of these enforcement options off the table, which would be, I'd say, not really defensible and and wrongheaded under any circumstances. It seems actually insane in the middle of the worst border crisis that we've seen in decades, one that is deepening. 
Well, you're right. And I should also say it's another way to abolish ICE without actually abolishing the agency. Instead, you do it bit by bit, you know, piece by piece, a little bit at a time in issuing these types of guidelines. But you're, you're exactly right. You know, DHS should be in the business of going after everyone who breaks the law, whether you're an employer or you're an employee or you're a worker who has illegally entered the country and is illegally working. They should go after all of those individuals equally. DHS should not be picking one over the other. And that's what they do, again, in these guidelines where the, the secretary of DHS, again, takes a class of individuals off of enforcement action, off of the table for ICE law enforcement to do their job. Again, you're picking winners and losers and they're and, uh, prioritizing, not even prioritizing, but just selecting one group of the, over the others. It's the wrong way to go. You know, a lot of these mass workplace enforcement actions, they don't occur very often. I think we did, you know, only a handful in the four years under the Trump administration because they're very, they're difficult to organize, they're difficult to plan. You've got to make sure that you have resources to prosecute at the end of the day. Uh, but when they are conducted, you know, they're based on evidence of criminal activity and supported throughout the country by U.S. attorneys and others. And so the idea that you're just going to look the other way, that you're not going to take this enforcement action if it's out there, uh, is just it, it's crazy to a lot of us who served at the department that support the men and women of DHS. And at the end of the day, the department's supposed to be enforcing all of the laws that Congress has passed and not simply choosing which ones they want to this week or this month or right. this year. And just the issue here is incentives and the message being sent and the message being clearly received by a lot of people who are considering joining the more than one and a half million who have already illegally crossed the border this year alone, which is just a staggering figure. They could not really be shouting any louder, even though their words occasionally say otherwise. Their actions could not be shouting any louder. We are weak on illegal immigration. If you get here, you will likely be able to stay no matter what you do. And the implications of that are playing out before our eyes. And it's not just me as you know a conservative or right-leaning commentator. It's not just you as an alumnus of the Trump administration. Here is Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat from South Texas. His district is at the border. He's talking about the incentives problem as well. Among other things, he said that Hispanics in Texas want to see the border enforced. I think a lot of progressives sort of assume in almost this bigoted, condescending way that Hispanics or Latinx people, as they would call them, which is a made-up term, uh, they're against border enforcement because they're Hispanics. The opposite is actually true, and public opinion polls bear that out, and the congressman mentioned that. He also said this in Cut 7. Listen. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more coming into the United States. As long as they think that the border is open, they're going to continue coming. It becomes a magnet. That's the reality of it. It becomes a magnet. That's the reality of it. If people believe that the borders are open and they believe that the borders are open because effectively in some very important ways, as you note, Mr. Secretary, the borders are open at this moment. I want to ask you one more question within this overall context of border enforcement, the Biden administration, the posture and rhetoric and actions of the White House. I know that you reacted pretty negatively, understandably so, to President Biden and the White House trying to scapegoat Border Patrol over that invented smear about whipping and whips at Del Rio, Texas. The president said that they were going to pay, not the illegal immigrants, the Border Patrol agents for using whips, even though there were no whips and there was no whipping. We are told that there's an investigation into that. 
Do you have any insight or access as to the the process or the uh, current status of that investigation? Because I think it will show the opposite based on the video. It will show the opposite of what the president himself said about it. Do you think we will ever get that result in a way where we might even get an apology from this president? Or is it all politics all the time? Well, I don't have any insight into that investigation. But if you remember at the time, the DHS secretary did indicate that that investigation, that he was going to, quote, fast track it and that it would be completed in under two weeks. That deadline has come and gone. Um, and we have we don't have any information about that investigation, because I think we all know what it's going to find is that these agents didn't do anything wrong. They did exactly as they were trained, if it's a fair investigation. Now, my concern at the time was, you know, the president, the vice president and the secretary making some inflammatory comments, trying to, um, you know, influence that investigation. So I'm concerned about that. But look, whether it's uh, these comments about Border Patrol and law enforcement or about all the policies that we've talked about, Guy, this is the, the Biden administration is playing to the left wing of their party. These are all things that progressives and activists have wanted for five to six years. They couldn't get it under the Obama administration. They certainly didn't get it under the Trump administration. But now they have found a voice inside the Biden administration and all these guidelines and everything else. This is exactly what they've been wanting for years and years and years uh, yep. at, you know, at the end of the day. No, the open borders crowd is thrilled. This is what they want, and they've gotten it from a weak president who's scared of them and governing based on left-wing Twitter. These are the results, and it's a multi-decade worst crisis, and it is apparently spiraling worse, and October could be the worst month yet under President Biden. Chad Wolf, our guest, former acting secretary of DHS. He's the chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at AFPI, also a visiting fellow over at the Heritage Foundation. Sir, appreciate it. Thanks for your time today. All right. Thank you. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So this is interesting. 4.3 million workers quit their jobs in the United States in August. 4.3 million quit. And it's hard to imagine that none of that had to do with vaccine mandates and what the Biden administration is trying to do, even within the realm of private industry, not just government workers, although they've had a problem with some government uh, government workers as well, federal workers and, and the like. I am very pro-vaccine. I think mandating certain people to have the vaccine in certain sectors makes sense. I am not a fan of federal government mandates, especially when it's the federal mandate that's then trying to basically dictate to companies what they have to do as well. And I recognize that people say, well, it's a very small percentage of people who are resigning or quitting in any given company. You add it all up, it's a lot of, it's millions of people. And we already have some significant issues like a, an acute labor shortage, which could really have some effects in the holidays. We've got an inflation problem. We've got a growth in jobs creation problem. 
We've seen thousands of flights canceled from Southwest. There are reports that there are flight attendants, especially pilots, who are protesting the vaccine mandate, which is being thrust upon their company by the government. And that has resulted in disruptions, thousands of canceled flights. I saw that the CEO of Southwest Airlines was on TV. He was asked how much of this has to do with the vaccine mandate stuff. He said zero. And I have, with all due respect, trouble believing that. They're going to blame it on the weather, even though there's no weather problems or delays for the other airlines. There's something else that's up there with Southwest. It's just something to keep an eye on. And it's not like this economy needs even more economic disruptions. Could this be a backfire? It's a question I ask as a pro-vaccine person. A big story you need to hear coming up next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Now, we're going to talk about a story coming out of Northern Virginia that is extremely disturbing. And I want to say that right out of the gate. If you have young kids in the room, maybe this is not a segment for you. If you are someone who is a survivor of sexual assault and hearing about additional stories in that vein is upsetting to you, this may not be the segment for you either. It's a story broken by the Daily Wire, and I want to try to have a conversation about it that is nuanced and thoughtful. It is going viral. It plays into a bunch of major themes in our political and cultural debate and discourse right now. Schools, Parental rights and parental involvement, cover-ups and trust deficits, and the changing face of sexual identity and norms in our country. And as we have a major gubernatorial race in Virginia, one of the key swing counties in that race is going to be Loudoun County, Virginia. Outside of Washington, D.C., a very wealthy, well-to-do, prosperous place. Luke Rosiak tweeted about the story in a whole thread and included a few excerpts from this lengthy multi-thousand-word story at the Daily Wire in investigation. That is the backdrop to this. And as you look at B-roll or sort of footage on the news or photographs that are attached to this overall controversy of parents making threats or getting hostile at these meetings, and the actual incidents, by the way, of violence or threats are infinitesimally small. It is certainly not a federal law enforcement matter. But one of the most recognizable faces that has been attached to this is that of a middle-aged-looking white man with a bald head who is getting dragged down by the police, and there was some pushing and shoving and an altercation at one of these meetings in Virginia. He and his case was cited in the letter that went to the Justice Department that triggered this memorandum and this new policy from the attorney general. In some ways, this guy is the face of the alleged problem, the alleged crisis of parents gone wild or whatever. What this story in the Daily Wire does is tell the story of who this man is, why he was at the meeting, and why he's so angry. And once you hear his side of the story, it is shocking. And it really completely turns on its head the caricature of this man being the villain or the bad guy or someone who would serve as a catalyst 
for the federal government to come down on parents like him. So here's that thread that I mentioned from Luke Rosiak, the journalist. As Loudoun schools sought to pass a controversial transgender policy in June, it concealed that a ninth grade girl was allegedly raped by a, quote, gender fluid student in a bathroom, a school bathroom, just three weeks prior, the Daily Wire has learned. Back in June, Loudoun County Public Schools lectured the public for worrying about a, quote, red herring on the transgender policy, saying that the district had zero bathroom assaults on record. It quietly transferred the boy who was charged in the May 28th assault to a new school. So they shuffled him off to another school. This is a gender fluid student who is biologically male. On October 6th, he was arrested, same student, for a new sexual assault inside a classroom there, the new school that he was sent to. The father of the victim, the initial victim, is a man you've seen, the bald man being dragged by the police. The county's top elected prosecutor personally tried to put him in jail. He was issued a no trespassing order, keeping him from telling his story at the meeting where this trans policy passed. The National School Board Association included Scott Smith, that's his name, in its list used to deem parents, quote, domestic terrorists. But, quote, if someone would have sat and listened for 30 seconds to what Scott had to say, they would have been mortified and heartbroken, his attorney said. So let me now read to you from this story. And I have some commentary and some analysis that I would like to add. I think we want to be careful and respectful when we talk about this story and its broader implications. But here are some of the details. On June 22nd, Scott Smith was arrested at a Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting, a meeting that was ultimately deemed an unlawful assembly after many attendees vocally opposed a policy on transgender students. What people did not know is that weeks prior on May 28th, Smith says a boy allegedly wearing a skirt entered a girl's bathroom at nearby Stonebridge High School where he sexually assaulted Smith's ninth grade daughter. Juvenile records are sealed, but Scott's attorney, Elizabeth Lancaster, told the Daily Wire that a boy was charged with two counts of forcible sodomy, one count of anal sodomy, and one count of forcible fellatio related to an incident that day at that school. Four very serious charges. This is forcible rape. As a result of the viral video showing his arrest, Smith became the poster child for what the National School Boards Association has since suggested could be a form of domestic terrorism. A white, blue-collar male who showed up to harangue obscure public servants on his local school board. Minutes before Smith's arrest at the school board meeting, the Loudoun County Public Schools superintendent lectured the public that concerns about the transgender policy were misplaced because the school system had no record of any assault occurring in any school bathroom. Then a woman wearing a rainbow heart shirt, a left wing community activist, told Smith she did not believe his daughter, the alleged victim. His rage boiled over. And he had a heated exchange of words with that woman. A police officer there to keep the peace in the meeting pulled on his arm. Smith yanked it away. Before he knew it, Smith says, he was hit in the face, handcuffed, and dragged across the floor with his pants pulled down. Images of the incident were splashed on televisions and newspapers across the world. Buta Bibaraj, 
the county's progressive top elected prosecutor, who has close ties to the school board's most liberal members, appeared in court to personally prosecute Smith for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. Bibaraj ran on a platform of ending mass incarceration, but she wanted to put Smith in jail for misdemeanors. As a prosecutor, Bibaraj would have known about the case involving Smith's daughter. The suspect, juvenile court prosecutors assured Smith, was being held responsible. He was on house arrest, confined to his mother's townhouse. According to Lancaster, who is Smith's lawyer, a conviction was expected on October 14th, likely in the form of a guilty plea to a lesser sexual assault charge. But on October 6th, according to Loudoun County sheriffs, a 15-year-old was charged with sexual battery and abduction after police said he forced a girl into an empty classroom, held her against her will, and touched her inappropriately. Lancaster, the lawyer, says the suspect in that case, the new case, is the same boy that allegedly attacked Smith's daughter. And then the story goes on in great detail, including this. After his daughter was allegedly raped in a bathroom by this student who's male but gender fluid, the school said it was handling the incident in-house. Smith, the father, was dumbfounded. Deputies from the sheriff's office ultimately responded to the school that day not to investigate the alleged rape of a child, Smith said, but because the school administrators called the police on him for making a scene about it. Smith acknowledges that he did make a scene and says any father would have done so in the same situation. Quote, I went nuts. I called the principal a P word, he said. Six cop cars showed up like an effing SWAT team to respond to the school's complaint about an assertive parent, he said. The police department declined to provide details to the Daily Wire. Smith goes on, quote, thank God I drew enough attention to it without getting arrested, that we got an escort to the hospital and they administered a rape kit that night, Smith said. So there was a rape kit performed on his daughter, according to the lawyer, which came back favorable to the prosecution's case, meaning the rape kit supported evidence of sexual assault. On 4.48 p.m., on the day of the incident, the principal sent out an email to the community that claimed nothing jeopardizing student safety had occurred, painting Smith as the villain and offering counseling services for witnesses of Smith's blow-up. But then as a result of the investigation, this individual, a juvenile, a 15-year-old boy, or a gender-fluid 15-year-old, has been charged with four extremely serious counts of sexual assault at the one school. He was moved to another school. Smith was assured that he was under some form of house arrest. But then it turns out, on October 6th, this person allegedly victimized another girl at the other school, pulling her into an empty classroom and assaulting her there and holding her against her will. And now this person is charged with that crime as well. And the school district apparently wanted to cover all of this up. He had so-called progressives at this meeting telling him explicitly that they did not believe his story or his daughter's story. I know we are way past believe all women. That only applies with an asterisk to certain women within a certain political framework. And if you are cutting against that political framework, then you are not to be believed. You're to be victim shamed and doubted as apparently his daughter was in this case, even though there were charges filed and then additional charges filed based on a subsequent incident, which would suggest to me this is likely. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. You have to go through the actual evidence and see what the process determines. 
but two separate incidents with the same alleged suspect at two different schools says a lot. And the school district, in the process of this debate over the trans issue, they wanted to tell the community this is all just a total conspiracy theory. There's no problem here whatsoever. It's a red herring. It's all built on bigotry. And we're going to pass this policy regardless of what you say. And this man did not get his say at that meeting because he was dragged away by the police because he got hot and heated with a woman calling his daughter, an alleged victim, a liar. Why wouldn't he have been infuriated by that? And now he's been the public face of parents acting badly, allegedly, at school board meetings justifying, I guess, the FBI getting involved. The prosecutor in the county saw fit to personally show up to make him the bad guy, put him on trial. No wonder he was furious. And if they want to make this man the face of this phenomenon, I don't think that's going to work out the way they want it to. Now, there's a key point that I have to make, and I will do so right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on The Guy Benson Show, and we were discussing this bombshell report from The Daily Wire. Now, here's a very important point that I want to make. I don't believe, let's say this is all true. And again, innocent until proven guilty. Let's say that it is true. And I think that there is good reason to believe that it is substantially true for the reasons that we've just outlined. Let's say you do have this gender fluid 15-year-old, biologically male, I guess identifying at the moment as a female, entering the girl's bathroom, sexually assaulting this girl. That incident involving what would appear to be a very bad apple and a deeply troubled bad person and a criminal should not serve and ought not serve as a basis for crafting an entire policy around issues involving transgender or gender fluid students. Right? We talk on this show a lot about how exceptions to the rule, vanishingly rare cases, for example, of kids dying from COVID, it is statistically almost non-existent. It doesn't mean that it's any less horrible in those circumstances for those families and those people, but those are not good bases for crafting wider policy. That would be an irrational, fear-based course of action, and we argue against it on this show. So I want to be consistent here. Because one person allegedly did a few very horrible things does not mean that there is a crisis involving bathrooms or trans people. We should not allow a tiny handful, in this case, one or two examples of a very terrible thing happening to dictate a policy that casts entire communities under suspicion. In this case, trans students, for example. I don't think that it is a rational or fair or reasonable way to go about this. It feels like scapegoating to do so. However, if you are the school district and the school officials in this very affluent community in Northern Virginia, first of all, you probably don't want any ugly headlines. Ooh, we don't want to hear about rape in a school bathroom in general. That's 
not good press. That's not what we like out in Loudoun County. So let's maybe try to suppress that. Keep a lid on it if possible. Let's send out that email. The principal saying, oh, there, there's no threat here. We're so sorry if any of you saw that blow up. We'll offer you counseling if you saw the father getting mad. That would be one reason for a potential cover-up. The other could be they wanted to tell the public that there are zero documented examples of any type of problem involving maybe a transgender or gender-fluid student with an assault in a bathroom. That is what they said publicly. Zero examples, no documentation that this has ever happened. When, in fact, there was an example. One horrific example that I suppose they very much wanted to keep out of the public eye. And so in service of a noble higher truth, they told a noble lie. So this was probably in their mind a noble cover-up because they didn't want one example being exploited by bigots in their mind to create a bigger issue than actually existed. But the way to do that is not to lie and is not to cover up. Because then people start to ask when this becomes revealed, how many other things do they cover up, not just on this issue, but on any host of issues? The powers that be, what do they cover up? What do they suppress in order to make sure that bad people don't have ammunition for arguments that they believe are bad or unacceptable? That goes to the distrust, the credibility deficit that is plaguing our society and our culture right now. You should be able to say, We did have this one incident. It is terrible. It is being handled, although they shipped this person to another school where they apparently reoffended. So that's another giant failure, it would seem. But we did have this one incident. We're not going to let that define an entire community or define our policies because that does not make sense and that is unjust. That, I think, would be a reasonable argument to make, but that's not what they did. They tried to suppress this, to memory hole it, to sweep it under the rug, at least for public consumption. And even worse, they decided to take the father, an aggrieved, livid father, whose daughter allegedly was seriously sexually assaulted inside a school bathroom, and turn him into the villain, not just locally, but now nationally. And this vignette to me, this story, and we will see how it plays out. And I want to emphasize, innocent until proven guilty, there is a legal process here. But the details of what we know, this side of the story that has not been told, you've seen this man's face on TV. You've seen the footage probably. It's been replayed all over the place. You likely had no idea what the context was, and now you do. And it sort of hits a little different, does it not? And I would dare say anyone who was involved in trying to keep this under wraps for the larger or for the larger or greater good has in fact now done the opposite and it's had the opposite effect. And that is a great disservice. Christopher Rufo, an expert on critical race theory and some of these parental outbursts justified in a lot of cases in my mind, will join us when we come back. Lots of details with him, not on this particular story, but the phenomenon broadly. You don't want to miss that interview. It's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. 
It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now here's your host, Guy Benson. Tuesday happy hour is here, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Crisp, fresh, delicious, and expanding across the country by popular demand. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold near you or order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and drink responsibly always. Our website here for children and adults of all ages. Family friendly, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is there for free. Key interviews, ways to listen live. It's all a one-stop shop, GuyBensonShow.com. And for the podcast, you can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I am pleased to welcome to the show Christopher Rufo. He's a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. And Chris, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. It's great to be with you. I would like to start this conversation about critical race theory, broadly speaking, with this recent development involving the DOJ and an intervention by the attorney general and the FBI based on a letter that was sent by an association of school boards sort of casting, not even sort of, explicitly casting parents being angry at school board meetings over a whole host of issues, including race essentialism or critical race theory, whatever you want to call it. They are framing that as a threat, a national security threat, a criminal threat, and potentially even domestic terrorism. And the Biden administration has taken that seriously and acted accordingly. You believe that this heavy-handed overreach is already backfiring. What makes you say that? What are you seeing on the ground among parents and grassroots activists and just maybe just average people who are fed up with this stuff and tuning into these battles when they may have been on the sidelines in the past? Well, we're seeing it actually backfiring at two different levels. On the elite organizational level, uh, this plan, this uh, accusation by the National School Board Association, which was then acted upon by the Biden administration, was based on a lie. They were saying that parents are uh, guilty of domestic terrorism and should be prosecuted under the Patriot Act. Uh, But actually, the document that they released only had one example of violence, a simple battery in Illinois, which obviously we should condemn. You shouldn't be violent at all. But it's hardly the justification for a national FBI uh, dragnet to seek and destroy uh, parent groups that oppose critical race theory and mask mandates uh, and other issues. Uh, So at the elite level, it fell apart. And you even had the members of the National School Board Association, the actual state associations, uh, start sending out letters to say, hey, we don't support this. We wouldn't sign off on this. We weren't even aware of this, uh, calling into question the national leadership. And then you have documents that are revealed uh, by the America First uh, policies, uh, Stephen Miller's group, that show that this was actually a kind of inside job that originated from the Biden uh, Justice Department. They were seeking justification, seeking a pretext. They had the school board association send a letter, which they then used uh, to, to announce this FBI program. Uh, So it stinks at the top, and parents can see through it. And we see now parents are really doubling down. They're more energized than ever on these efforts because they're not going to let the schools force critical race theory uh, into the curriculum, and they're certainly not going to let the FBI and the DOJ intimidate them and silence them. So if it's true, and if there's documentation that proves that this is some sort of of circular inside scheme where elite Democrats – 
wanted a reason or an excuse to investigate and intervene and sick the FBI on parents, presumably in defense of their buddies in big education, the NEA and other teachers unions and other organizations that are part of the bureaucracy that overwhelmingly back the Democratic Party, deep pockets. There, There's a very important political relationship there. They wanted to go and help their buddies by attacking parents. They needed some sort of excuse to do so. And so they got some of those friends to effectively invent an excuse, which they then held up as a reason to leap into action, the very action that they wanted to take all along. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when these documents were, wow. when the FBI document was first released, it was certainly my suspicion. You see the NSBA uh, asking for this really specific and I think extreme designation, uh, an FBI investigation into parents. And then just a few days later, the Department of Justice, uh, the Attorney General releases the memo, really complying with all their demands, launching a nationwide task force. And, and so certainly at that point, the suspicions were raised. But now we have uh, leaked documents published. Uh, by uh, America First uh, Legal that show that they were seeking uh, someone who is not one of the usual suspects, not the NEA, not the AFT, a smaller entity that is less uh, politicized, that they were actually seeking these agencies or these entities uh, as a pretext to launch this campaign. And then you saw the NEA and and the School Board Association immediately celebrating this announcement. Um, right, of course. And, and I think what we're going to see is that uh, and we're seeing un- 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 unveiled and really revealed is something that we kind of suspected all along, that uh, the Biden administration is using the vast powers of the federal government, including the vast uh, uh, investigatory and prosecutorial powers of the DOJ and the FBI, to silence parents, to criminalize dissent, and to intimidate people who, who are a threat to the power uh, of their greatest allies, the teachers unions and the public school bureaucracies. You know, I remember back in, was it 2013, it was revealed that the Obama administration weaponized the IRS to punish and intimidate and persecute their critics. And here we have a different branch of the government with a lot of power, police power, as a matter of fact, being mobilized to do something similar on what is apparently a political nuisance and threat to the Democratic Party and their grip on power. That's the line that sort of the thread that connects those two incidents And it very much looks like an abuse. I think it is very hard for anyone who is even reasonably open-minded to look at what's happening around the country and see where the teachers unions have taken this country, what has happened for the last year and a half, and to say, yes, the real problem and the real threat to the point of terrorism, where the FBI needs to be involved and the Patriot Act invoked, the real problem here, the real threat is parents who might have a problem with some of it based on evidence or examples that are so scant or invented or completely distorted as to make them extremely suspicious, to your point, Chris. And I actually want to pick up on this and focus on the state of Virginia, where there's an upcoming election where Democrats have their power in the crosshairs and they might lose power. They are very worried about that. They haven't lost a statewide race in Virginia, the Democrats, in 12 years. And there's some real momentum and traction being gained by the Republican in the race, Glenn Youngkin, who's hammering away on education issues. Terry McAuliffe is completely in the pocket of the teachers unions. You've got Randy Weingarten tweeting her total endorsement of McAuliffe. He, of course, sent all of his kids to private school. That's a separate question. But on the issue of critical race theory and some of this poison that has been introduced in certain Virginia 
districts, especially in the exurbs and suburbs of D.C., where it's become a huge controversy. Terry McAuliffe is sort of panicking about it, and he's lying about it. And I want to play for you a couple sound bites from McAuliffe, the Democrat who's running for governor of Virginia. He was asked in a local interview about this broad set of questions. He was asked to define critical race theory. Here's what he said in cut 10. It is not taught here in Virginia. But how do you define it? Doesn't matter. It's not taught here well, in Virginia. So I'm not going to spend my time. On, on what it is. I'm not even spending my time because the school board and everyone else has come out and said it's not taught. It's racist. It's a dog whistle. But if we don't have a definition, how can we say it's racist? I just want a definition from yeah. you. It, it's not taught here in Virginia. We can ask about any topic. Here's what I've said all along. And it really bothers me. You know, I re- it really bothers me. This whole idea of stirring parents up to create divisions. Our children are going through such challenges today because of COVID. And we're talking about something here today, wasting precious viewers' time. I will just, as an aside, mention what a strange accent he has. Or he's throwing in like some southern accent there, but then he's pronouncing words like he's from the upper Midwest. In any case, that does not matter. But his assertion, as you just heard, Christopher Rufo, is that Critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia. He says it's racist, not CRT, but people worried about it are racist. It's a dog whistle. He won't define it. And what bothers him is anyone asking about it because it's a waste of viewers' time. He was also asked about it a few days later on CNN. This was over the weekend. He gave a similar answer in Cut 11. We don't teach critical race theory. This is a made-up, this is a Trump, Betsy DeVos, uh, Glenn Youngkin plan to divide people. And, and, And it really bothers me. I try to unite people. I want to give every child, regardless of whom you love, the color of your skin or whom you pray to, a world-class education. I did this before, but that's why parents overwhelmingly support me. I'm going to build the greatest education system. But electing Glenn Youngkin, dividing children, dog whistles, creating racist, I mean, it's horrible what's being done. It's horrible what's being done. Not in schools, not with this stuff being peddled or indoctrinated, but anyone talking about it, noticing it, or criticizing it. So... Chris, let me ask you first to answer the question that McAuliffe would not. How do you define critical race theory? Sure. Critical race theory is an academic framework that argues that the United States was founded on and is still driven by white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalist exploitation, and that the only way to resolve those inherent permanent structural problems uh, is to abolish the institutions of the United States and then reform them in the image of social justice. And that's the kind of academic definition. It changes a bit once it's adapted into the K-12 education system. But McCullough's idea that it's not taught in Virginia schools is, is verifiably false. Uh, we have records, uh, including actual contract receipts from Loudoun County, Virginia. Uh, they actually are paying $625 an hour for consulting that specifically uh, references critical race theory by name. Uh, the old, the, the former superintendent even admitted in an email uh, to parents that the ideologies that they're promoting in Loudoun County are directly aligned with critical race theory. And also in Fairfax County, we have Asian American parents that are in revolt against changes to the advanced education system. Uh, and they argue that with the implementation of critical race theory ideology in Fairfax County schools, they're now going after merit, they're going after advanced classes, they're going after to kind of recompose the the, the racial balance of schools to eliminate uh, seats for Asian-Americans who are deemed kind of an oppressor class or a highly privileged class. So we see it uh, in the kind of D.C. suburbs of Virginia. It's documented. We have actual receipts and contract data. And so McAuliffe is trying to maintain this fiction until uh, he can kind of run out the clock 
Uh, but parents know better. And we know from polling data in those two D.C. Uh, counties, Fairfax and Loudoun, that the critical race theory is deeply unpopular, not only with Republicans, but deeply unpopular with independents and even some Democrats. So we see that uh, Glenn Youngkin is really using this issue uh, to, to raise the profile of his campaign. And, and I think that his message, whether he wins or not, is certainly resonating with people who say, hey, look, we want to provide opportunities for everyone. We want to treat people with respect and dignity, no matter their racial background. Uh, but critical race theory doesn't do that. In fact, critical race theory is designed to divide people into competing racial categories, pit them against one another, and undermine the foundation, uh, the foundational beliefs of most families in this country. Terry McAuliffe in those interviews saying that this is a made-up controversy. It doesn't exist in Virginia. You just gave several specific examples refuting those assertions, and there are more, by the way. A school being renamed because uh, Thomas Jefferson, we can't have his name on a school. George Mason, a school named after him, was also renamed. I think a lot of this stuff falls into the bucket of critical race theory or race essentialism or racialist pedagogy. And McAuliffe is just sort of putting on blinders and screaming into the camera, essentially, it's not happening. This is all a lie. People who are telling you that it might be happening, they are racist. It's a dog whistle. And any questions, a lot of this is working the refs, basically saying, don't you dare ask me about this because it's a waste of my time, a waste of the viewer's time. He does not want to actually engage on the subject because it is a threat to him, his party, his political ideology. And we're just talking about Virginia because the race is active and the election's coming up in a few weeks. But this is very much a national concern as well. I want to explore that a little bit as soon as we come back with Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute here on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. We are. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening. Our guest is Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute. He's their director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory and a senior fellow. And we were focusing a bit on critical race theory in Virginia But as I mentioned, this is also a phenomenon that is playing out across the country. It's not just in deep blue cities. I mean, of course, we're seeing it in New York, and of course, we're seeing it in Chicago, and of course, we're seeing it in San Francisco. But the exurbs of Washington, D.C., sort of swing counties of Virginia, there are parents across the nation who are on guard for this stuff because it's not just limited to some of the usual suspect locations and sort of deep blue areas, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I've reported on the critical race theory programs all over the country and in, in kind of red districts and blue states, but also red districts in red states, such as uh, programs in Missouri or Texas or elsewhere. Uh, and so this is an ideology that emanates from graduate schools of education. So predominantly uh, state-supported public universities, uh, their graduate programs and in, in that trains teachers to, and then enter the workforce. Uh, we know that the number one uh, most assigned text in graduate schools of education is the pedagogy of the oppressed by the critical pedagogist Paulo Freire. It, and these related ideologies are, are really the foundation for teacher training programs all over the country uh, at the flagship public universities and conservative states. And so we have a major problem here where the bureaucracy is really all in 
supporting this, even though the public is not. So there's this tremendous mismatch between public sentiment, which doesn't want critical race theory, by somewhere between a, a 20 and 40 point margin. Uh, they want it out of schools. And yet all of our permanent bureaucratic institutions, public universities, federal bureaucracies, uh, uh, local bureaucracies surrounding the public school systems, uh, they've bought in to this ideology. And that's what we're seeing play out at school board meetings across the country. We have well, the and that's the thing, and that's where the bullying side. comes in, right? That's where the weaponization of the DOJ comes in to protect something against public opinion and any grassroots effort, organic effort to stem the tide or turn the tide needs to be beaten back by the force of law. I think that's part of what's behind this meddling from the attorney general and the Biden administration. Very quickly, Christopher Rufo, before you go, even in the face of all of this, what can parents do if they say, I don't want to be intimidated, I don't want to be dissuaded from speaking out? What are the best practices here for parents to get involved, make their voices heard, and ensure that they will not be silenced in a way that's actually constructive? There are three things that every parent can do that are free. They take some time, uh, but they're well worth the effort. First is network with people uh, in your community, other parents, other families. You know, we have strength in numbers. When we go in numbers, they can't uh, deny you. They can't silence you. Second, show up at those school board meetings. Express your opinion. Always do it uh, peacefully. Always do it respectfully. Uh, but always do it passionately. Get your point across. And then third, file freedom of information requests at your local school district to find out exactly what's happening. Because when we expose these, when we bring light to them, uh, that's when we can shift public sentiment. That's when we can win. Uh, and then I guess a fourth bonus thing is uh, if you're not happy with what you see, run for school board. The local elections matter. The local elections are decisive in how your community uh, functions. Uh, and that's the heart uh, of democracy. And we all need to get involved. All politics is local, as they say, especially on the education issue that resonates. Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, senior fellow and director of their initiative on critical race theory. Sir, thank you so much for your time today. We'd love to have you back because this is a live issue for sure. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. And earlier today, back in our first hour, we were joined in studio, at least up in New York, by one of our favorite colleagues here at Fox News. She needs no real introduction. She is Dana Perino. Here's part of that chat. And I cannot get enough of this story about the vice president, Kamala Harris. We played a clip of this on the show yesterday before a detail leaked out about the context. But this was the vice president meeting with some children talking about discovery and NASA and outer space. And she was talking to them. People are joking like she like had a lot of edibles and they all hit her at once. She was really feeling herself in this clip. It's even more amazing to watch, which we can't do here on the radio. And the kids are dutifully sitting there listening as she's rhapsodizing about space and discovery or what have you. This is what it sounded like, just as a reminder, cut three. To think about so much that's out there that we still have to learn. Like, I love that. I love that. And so I'm very excited about the Space Council. We're going to learn so much um, as we increasingly, I think, are curious and interested in the potential for the discoveries and the work we can do in space. So that's one of the things I'm most excited about. 
And she goes on at one point. I'm telling it's going to be unbelievable. You can see the moon with your own eyes. And the kids are like, whoa. She's talking to them like they're five. They look like they're maybe 12 or 13. So there's the awkwardness there. And then we learned last night that these were not kids from some local school. That was my assumption, like the, the science club. From one of the local D.C. schools came in to learn about this, and it's a YouTube series called Get Curious with Vice President Harris. No, these were actually child actors who had to audition <laughs> for these parts, and they booked these parts to show up and play average kids, which is probably why they looked so engaged and enthralled as opposed to slightly creeped out by this woman. I don't understand what the thought process was here to have paid child actors come in for this it makes it even more hilarious to me dana i think that's the thing that we should all do with this we just have you just have to laugh this is I, m- one of my very favorite shows of the last several years is veep i yes. recommend it to everybody like this yes. would have happened on veep it 100%. literally would have happened and then when the white house um responded today <laughs> when the vice president's office responded their s- statement was something like we had no idea that this was happening we had no- nothing to do with the child actors and I said, oh, don't worry. We didn't think you had a clue about any of it. I mean, that is a pattern that we are seeing over and over again. You know, they yeah, hired a... They don't know anything. They hired an image consultant to help her seem more relatable. And in order to do that, they had to hire child <laughs> actors. And also, Guy, do you know that this was all happening? She actually filmed this on the day where Afghanistan was falling apart. It was that day? I, was, I can't remember the exact date, but it was, yeah, it was one of those days. I'm trying to find it in my notes right here. Um, yeah, it was one of those like one of like those days Ooh. where you're thinking, oh, my gosh, did this, um, you know, you see everything uh, disintegrating, kids getting kicked out, girls getting kicked out of school, things like that. Um, wait, here it is, Ooh. right here it is, like, right here. Bring the actors in. Bring the kid actors in here, and they're going to uh, ooh and ah as the vice president talks about outer space. Yep. Yep. Um, but here's the thing. Um just laugh about it, right? So they use yeah. taxpayer dollars. But oh, wait, I forgot the best part. Forgot the best part. Yeah. The name of the production company. Uh-huh. I love this. Sinking Ship Entertainment. <laughs> Honestly, this is Veep. Even, even the and writers of Veep Canadian. could not have come up with this. It's that funny. They're not even American. They're not even an American production company. Yeah, Toronto. Company. How about that? They're, they're, they're a Canadian group America called Sinking Second. Ship. America second. And they brought these kids in. And there's one one of the child actors who I think is 13 uh, who auditioned. And then his agent called him and said, hey, you booked the gig. And the gig was to come and pretend to be interested at the Naval Observatory with Kamala Harris who's uh, carrying on with these children, I guess. Did you notice the other part of that, Dana, where it's like she psyched herself up to talk to kids and had – sort of a mismatch in her brain of the tone for the age group. Because you talk to tweens or adolescents very differently than first graders. But she was going first grader with the tweens. I think that one of the problems for her has been for a long time that she doesn't seem authentic. Um, And you saw that in the focus group. Don't take that from me. Um, This is from Democratic voters. Um, that there was an authenticity pro- problem, and you saw and this phony. over and over again. And uh, they don't do her any favors as an image consultant saying, oh, this would might be a really great way to make her seem relatable by hiring child actors and putting her in a position where she's not comfortable. So what do you get for, for this? They're going to put this on a YouTube channel? 
what voter exactly, what voter constituency are you going for? What do you actually care about? Do you have any idea what's going on in this country? Um, Guy, I have to say that I just find it mystifying that somebody who achieves this incredible accomplishment of becoming the first woman vice president is basically not doing anything with the power of the office. And yeah. I and, and I, I, well, I realize that a lot it. of people might think that whatever she would do on the border might not be what they want, but at least you could admire her for trying. She literally is doing nothing that you can see. There's nothing tangible. And I think what a waste of an opportunity. And I, I say oh, that here publicly because I would like to say to her in person, like, come on, just do it. Like, for example, when those three... Guys in the Biden administration went down to Mexico last week to talk about the immigration problem, and she didn't go, and she's supposed to be in charge of the issue. There's no way I would have let them go without me. Heck no. I would have said, actually, you guys are invited to ride on my plane, and I will be leading the delegation, and you can brief me while we are on our way there. My full interview with Dana Perino, available at Guy Benson Show. The podcast is free and on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, another conversation about dreaming. Apparently, work intervening, work showing up in your dreaming life is increasingly common during the pandemic. Producer Christine can relate. We'll get to all of that as soon as we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad that you've been with us today. If you missed any of the program, as usual, the podcast is free of charge on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, yesterday during this segment, we were talking about James Bond. We were talking about Squid Game. And producer Christine interjected into the conversation a work-related nightmare that she had. In recent nights, where I guess she had watched the first few episodes of Squid Game and then dreamt in her sleep that Dan, our new engineer and technical producer, was in Squid Game and she was living through it as well. And he was wearing one of those weird jumpsuits and was on some sort of conveyor belt. And right on cue comes this story from the Wall Street Journal. When work invades your sleep through your dreams, we dream about what preoccupies us. And during the pandemic, things got weird. Here's how the story starts. You're giving a presentation without any pants. The plane to your business trip is taxiing away as you run for the gate. And what's the boss from your first job doing here? Don't worry. It was just a dream. And you're not alone. A lot of people say work has invaded their sleep, especially during the pandemic, as boundaries have been obliterated and burnout is on the rise. The good news? Dreams can help us solve problems or reach realizations about our careers and ourselves. So this is giving me some flashbacks to months ago when we had the dream interpreter on the air. That was a very popular conversation. It went on for multiple segments where she was talking about common dreams, certain themes that arise in people's dreams. I gave her a few of mine, like being late for an exam or being unprepared for an exam or not having graduated from high school or college and discovering that much later on in life. 
and she explained in her mind what that meant. Producer Christine had a few that she raised as well. And I guess it is now a phenomenon that has deepened during COVID, during the pandemic, where people have been on edge and stressed out, where work and other elements of their lives are seeping into their dreams in ways that are kind of disturbing. I also find it just fascinating when you can remember a dream the next day and when you can't. Most of the time I cannot, but occasionally I will. And sometimes it's so funny or weird that I will scribble down a note on my bedside table or send myself a text message just with a few bullet points or key words about the dream. And then other times, like today, hours later, I can draw on certain recollections from dreams. And I have no idea why that occurs and why on certain days it's easy and other days it's just boom, gone the instant I wake up. The whole realm of one's dreaming consciousness, I think, is really interesting. And here's this journal story echoing a point, basically illustrating a point, that what Cookie, producer Christine, just experienced recently with her colleague in one of her dreams is not unusual at all. In fact, it is very frequent and perhaps growing in frequency during the pandemic. And Christine, you were saying Dan, who's a new addition to the team, is not the only member of this motley crew here at the Guy Benson Show who has made perhaps unwelcome appearances in your dream life. Is that correct? Oh, no. I have, like, night terrors about you weekly. Me? Yes. I have constant dreams that you were saying to me, like, get this guest up on the board, or why am I not speaking? You know, how come you can't hear me? And I'm trying to talk to you, or I'm trying to dial a number, and I just can't see the numbers on my call screener. Like everything is just blurred together and you're yelling and I I have a lot of those dreams. I also have. Well, hang on. Let's just stop there for a second Hmm. because I'm a little puzzled by this. Number one, I think it is fair to say in spite of some of the ridicule and ribbing that we give you, especially during this segment on a pretty regular basis, I'm not sure my management style can be described as tyrannical. No, not at And I'm at all. not sure I have ever yelled at you for anything. So I'm trying to figure out why the recreation of me in your dreams is so much worse and meaner than real life. Maybe that can be your key mid-dream to realize this can't be real. He never yells and you can wake yourself up that way. I cannot – I know there are people that can get themselves out of their dreams or their nightmares. I cannot yeah. wake myself up. I oh. and I have the the thing where I wake up. Okay, I here's another one. I have a dream sometimes that uh, Bobby, the sainted Bobby, might be uh, stepping out on me. If you know what I mean. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I wake up and I'm I'm in real life angry at him. I'm very very upset with him and I can't figure out why. And he says to me, "You can't be mad at me about a dream. That's not fair. You are mad at me about plenty of other things. It can't be about dreams, but." I'm really upset with him. So this is now reminding me of something totally crazy. We're going to veer way off course. There is a documentary. I believe it's available on Amazon Prime or Hulu. It's on one of the streaming services. It's called Dream Killer. And it's about a young man who was convicted 
of a role in a murder and sentenced to decades in prison based on his alleged co-conspirator's dream. There was no hard evidence. I don't want to spoil things because it's a pretty astounding documentary. But this guy gets convicted on the evidence of a quote-unquote witness, his friend, who dreamed that they did something and then went to the police. And the friend was definitely guilty, but he just conjured an element of the crime for which there was absolutely no evidence, which was basically having an accomplice. And in our system, under our justice system, this guy got convicted. It was absolutely shocking. If you watch the documentary, the amount of misconduct and lying and terrible lawyering on the defense side, it is genuinely disturbing. And I will give a slight spoiler here. So spoiler alert. The guy, thanks to the indefatigable work and efforts of his own father, eventually gets his sentence overturned. And some people get into very big trouble. And he spent years in prison. He spent years behind bars, not knowing if he would ever get out. And what's wild about it is he is now dating, maybe even engaged to, Adam's cousin, my husband's cousin. Like, we have a connection to this guy. And Adam's cousin just got hired by Fox for the new weather service that they're launching. So I almost feel like the dream killer who's the subject of this documentary, maybe we should get him in here, do an interview because the story is crazy. And I think we have an in. I can call my husband who can call his cousin who can call her boyfriend or fiance. Let's talk about this off air, Christine. I was not expecting to have this memory, but it just occurred to me since we're talking about dreaming. How about someone who is convicted of a crime based on a made-up dream? Anyway, go on. Wow. I'm, I'm blown away by all of that. that You're is... Googling now, aren't you? You're yep. Googling uh... the dream killer. <laughs> and he's been nicknamed the dreamy killer by a lot of people because he's, he's not the worst-looking guy in the world. Oh. But he spent some of his prime years of his life, like 20s, early 30s, I believe, in prison for something that he did not do with proof that he didn't do it, it's just crazy. An example of our criminal justice system going wrong, which is why it is not infallible, which is why I think evidence and appeals and justice should always matter more than just checking a box for an outcome. I have now completely pulled this segment away from our intent. And our original plan. I apologize, but not really, because now people might go watch Dream Killer. You'd be like, how is that even possible in any country, let alone this country? Anyway, Christine, next time you're having a dream and I'm yelling at you and berating you and abusing you, or if, if it's Wyatt, it's much more in character for him. He just He's just a menace. He's going crazy. Just try to think in the moment. Try to dream in a conscious way oh, wait, this can't be real, and wake yourself up. I know it's been a struggle, but I think you can do it, and that might help you get past all of this stuff. Any final thoughts, Christine, on this? I never had a dream about Wyatt, I just realized. 
Hmm. Wow. So Dan shows up and you're dreaming about him within days. Yep. I'm a regular occurring antagonist apparently in your dream life. But Quiet Wyatt, with whom you have worked for quite some time, maybe he is in your dreams. He's just very quiet. He's lurking in the background of your dream. Just quietly reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> just peeking over his print edition. And then quickly back up before you see him. All right, we are done for the day. The Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show coming your way in 21 hours. If you missed any of... Catch up on any missed programming, of course, on The Guy Benson Show podcast, free of charge, on demand. Have a great night. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.